Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, and welcome to the CIBC Quarterly Financial Results Call. Please be advised that this call is being recorded. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Jeff Weiss, Senior Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Jeff. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. We will begin this morning's presentation with opening remarks from Victor Dodig, our President and Chief Executive Officer. Following Victor, Raj Panosian, our Chief Financial Officer, will review our operating results. Sean Bieber, our Chief Risk Officer, will close out the prepared remarks with a risk management update. We're also joined in the room by CIBC's business leaders, including Harry Cullum, Laura Dottori Atanasio, and John Huntalis, as well as Mike Capitides, who has joined us remotely from the USA. They will be available to take questions following the prepared remarks. As noted on slide two of our investor presentation, our comments may contain forward-looking statements which involve assumptions that have inherent risks and uncertainties. Actual results may differ materially. With that, I will now turn the meeting over to Victor. Thank you, Jeff, and good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you and your families are well. Over the last six months, we've seen significant change in the market as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Initially, our focus was on the urgent response required to deliver relief to individuals and to businesses as we navigated through a period of great uncertainty. More recently, our focus has shifted towards recovery, maintaining our commitment to our clients as we reignite our long-term strategic growth plans and to do our part to support the recovery of our economies. With that context, I'd like to share three key messages with you. The first is our CIBC team has responded to this pandemic with professionalism, with dedication, and with purpose. And they are the foundation for our growth efforts moving forward. There's no substitute for a purpose-driven culture, and our entire team remains focused on making our clients' ambitions a reality. The second is that we're investing for the long term, to position CIBC for success as we emerge from the pandemic stronger and prepared to capture growth. And the third is that the investments that we've made over the past several years to simplify and to modernize our bank and deepen client relationships have positioned us well. The results this quarter reflect the resilience of our bank. Since our second quarter call with you in May, Canada's economy has seen some signs of recovery with with the cautious reopening of many sectors. However, many businesses are still operating far from pre-pandemic levels. The Bank of Canada's message last month underscored the path to a full recovery could be both lengthy and uncertain. In the U.S., while many states reopened during the quarter, the continued spread of the virus could translate into a prolonged recovery. Against this backdrop, we remain cautiously optimistic and believe that our strong core franchise, client-centric focus, and diversified business will enable us to get back to pre-COVID levels of profitability. To that end, I'm pleased to report that CIBC achieved adjusted earnings of $1.2 billion Canadian dollars and earnings per share of $2.71 in the third quarter. The resilience of our core business and continued expense discipline resulted in stable pre-provision earnings despite a more challenging and lower interest rate environment. 
Included in these results is a provision for credit losses of $525 million, which is significantly lower than the $1.4 billion provision last quarter. Haratch and Sean will provide more detail on this shortly. On the balance sheet, and capital, our balance sheet and capital position remains strong, with a CET1 ratio of 11.8%. Our excess capital provides significant flexibility to continue to support our clients, to invest in our business, and maintain dividends to our shareholders. We rose to the challenge of supporting our clients with much-needed financial relief during the first phase of the pandemic. After peaking in early April, requests for payment relief have been on a steady decline. In the last six weeks, the number of new requests have been de minimis and averaged around only 1% of peak levels. Now I'd, like to return, now I'd like to turn to our business units. On the retail side, overall consumer spending has recovered somewhat, though it remains below pre-pandemic levels. In line with this, personal and business banking credit card purchase volumes have trended upwards since the trough in April. July volumes were down 6% year-over-year, compared to a decline of 33% in April over the previous year. We drove year-over-year growth in mortgage balances of 3% on a spot basis as the real estate market started to recover in June and July. And while our performance is not yet where we want it to be, our recent growth has returned closer to market levels, supported by additions to our mobile advisor team and a streamlined application process. We continue to see very high levels of digital engagement with digital banking sessions and transactions up approximately 25% from pre-pandemic levels. Our North American commercial banking businesses continued to see strong deposit growth in the third quarter as our clients emphasized liquidity amidst the economic uncertainty. Within our North American wealth businesses, we are seeing good momentum with more than $8 billion of net year-to-date client inflows across our Canadian and U.S. wealth platforms. Our capital markets business had a very good quarter, driven by strong trading activity across most asset classes, continued strength in debt underwriting, and improved equity underwriting. Our emphasis on building deep client relationships and connectivity with other areas of our bank is delivering strong client-focused results. This includes our focus on growing our U.S. market share, which is progressing well with revenue up 43% in this region on a year-to-date basis. As we navigate through the pandemic, we remain well-positioned to balance short-term actions necessary to fully support our clients and the economic recovery while advancing our long-term strategy. We have a number of key strategic initiatives underway to further streamline operations, improve our efficiency, and enable us to reinvest strategically to further strengthen our market position. As you recall, we announced a workforce restructuring earlier this year. We expect to complete this restructuring in the fourth quarter and deliver the previously disclosed run rate savings of $260 million by the beginning of fiscal 2021. We are repurposing a portion of the expected savings towards targeted strategic investments. To that end, we continue to invest in technology and innovation to simplify our bank and create an engaging and modern modern banking experience for our clients. These investments build on the foundational work we've done over the last five-plus years to build an industry-leading digital banking platform. As clients increasingly shift to these alternate platforms, we're pleased to be ranked number one among the big five banks for customer satisfaction in mobile banking as ranked by J.D. Power this quarter. We will continue to make investments in this area to further cement our leadership position. During this pandemic, we continue to prioritize the well-being of our clients 
and our CIBC team. And as more communities we open, we are taking a measured approach to how we manage our business. We continue to employ many precautions in our physical space, including ensuring physical distancing, adding signage, and installing physical barriers as needed. In addition, approximately 60% approximately of our team continues to work remotely, and we anticipate that the majority of these colleagues will continue to work off-site into 2021. We are aligning our decisions and timing around our long-term real estate plans, including CIBC Square. The work that was already underway to prepare for our new headquarters proved very valuable when the pandemic set in, as our tech-enabled team was able to stay connected and productive throughout. Going forward, CIBC Square will afford us greater flexibility and the opportunity to be nimble as we adapt to the environment we operate in. We'll keep you apprised of our evolving workplace transformation in the coming quarters. Now, before I turn the call over to Harach, I'd like to uh, highlight our commitment to diversity and inclusion. Since our last earnings call, the issue of systemic racism has come to the fore. It's incumbent on all of us as individuals and organizations to look inward and understand what we can do to address social injustice, which disproportionately affects the black and indigenous communities. For CIBC, our success hinges on our people. We're part of a singularly connected team and inclusion is foundational to the way we do business. While we've made good progress on building a more inclusive bank, it's important to acknowledge that we have more work to do. We are committed to addressing systemic racism in all its forms within our bank and to being a force for good in our communities. And with that, I'd like to turn the call over to Haraj for a more detailed review of our financial results. Thank you, Victor, and good morning, everyone. Starting on slide seven, this morning we reported earnings of $1.2 billion and diluted earnings per share of $2.55 for the third quarter of 2020. Excluding the items of note detailed in the appendix of our presentation, adjusted earnings per share was $2.71. This quarter we absorbed an incremental $525 million in provision for credit losses, up 80% from the prior year, but down 63% from last quarter, as we experienced a comparatively smaller change in the economic outlook than we did in Q2. Sean will speak to provisions in more detail in his remarks. Pre-provision earnings of $2.1 billion increased 1% from the prior year, reflecting the strength of our diversified franchise and management actions in response to the current economic environment. While our personal and commercial banking businesses continue to face revenue headwinds due to the ongoing pandemic, these were more than offset by growth in funds managed across our bank, a record quarter in capital markets, and strong expense discipline. Revenue of $4.7 billion was stable year-over-year year, as a 2% increase in net interest income helped by trading and deposit growth offset a 3% decline in non-interest income, largely due to reduced transactional activity by our personal and commercial clients. Adjusted expenses of $2.6 billion were down 1% from the prior year, despite headwinds from COVID-related expenses and foreign exchange translation, resulting in positive operating leverage. We will continue to be focused on expense discipline and expect expense growth to be contained going forward. As illustrated on slide eight, we continue to demonstrate the resilience of our balance sheet, building on the strength in our, of our capital and liquidity positions over the quarter. We experienced significant growth in client deposits across our business, resulting in an increase in our liquidity reserves. Average LCR was 150% through the quarter, representing a buffer of over $60 billion relative to the 100% regulatory minimum. 
Our capital position also strengthened over this period, ending the quarter with a CET1 ratio of 11.8% and 12.2% pro forma, including the pending FCIB transaction. Internal capital generation, a net decrease in RWAs, and an improvement in the value of securities in our HPLA portfolios all contributed to the near 50 basis point increase over the prior quarter. While RWAs this quarter reflect negative migration resulting from the completion of credit reviews across a large part of our wholesale portfolios, this was more than offset by lower utilization across our credit portfolios, delinquency trends in retail, and a reduction in market risk. Our ending capital position represents a buffer of over $7 billion in capital or almost $80 billion in RWA relative to the 9% regulatory minimum, and our current medium-term outlook is relatively stable. As such, we continue to be confident in our ability to support our clients and our dividend payments as we navigate through the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The balance of my presentation will refer to adjusted results, which exclude items of note. Slide 9 reflects our personal and business banking results. Despite revenue headwinds from the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, we continue to make progress against our longer-term goals. Net income for the quarter was $510 million, down 23% from last year. Revenues of $2.1 billion decreased 8% year-over-year, largely as a consequence of the ongoing pandemic. Net interest income was down 6% due to lower rates and the interest rate relief provided to some credit card clients, partially offset by strong deposit growth. Non-interest income was down 13% as average transactional activity by consumers remained below the prior year despite improvements from the last quarter. Net interest margin of 238 basis points for the quarter was down 16 basis points from last year and 6 basis points sequentially. While the expiry of interest rate relief will provide some sequential benefit to margins in the short term, we anticipate facing gradual pressure longer term as we continue to absorb the impact of the decline in the yield curve earlier this year. Expenses of $1.1 billion were comparable to both the prior year and the prior quarter. We continue to manage our expenses as market conditions evolve, balancing efficiency improvements with targeted reinvestment. Slide 10 shows the results of our Canadian commercial banking and wealth management business. While we maintained our strong market position, the segment was impacted by the market slowdown due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Net income for the quarter was $320 million, down 7% from a year ago, while pre-provision earnings were in line with the prior year, driven by stable revenues and a 2% decline in non-interest expenses. Commercial banking revenue was up 2% from a year ago, benefiting from the growth in both loans and deposits, offset in part by the negative impact of rates and lower transactional fees. Deposit and lending balances were up 17% and 5% respectively over the year. While deposit growth continued to be strong in the quarter, loan balances stabilized as both new originations and utilization moderated. Wealth management revenue was down 2% from the prior year, primarily driven by lower fee revenues in our full-service brokerage business as a result of reduced market activity. The 2% decrease in expenses reflects lower revenue-based variable compensation and strong expense discipline over the quarter. Turning to slide 11, U.S. commercial banking and wealth management results reflect continued growth in our U.S. franchise. Net income for the quarter was $77 million, down 58% from the prior year. Pre-provision earnings growth continued to be strong at 10% year-over-year in Canadian dollars or 7% in local currency. 
Revenues were up at 3% in Canadian dollars and in line with the prior year in U.S. dollars as double-digit growth in client balances offset headwinds from a significant decline in interest rates and lower syndications. Average loans grew 19% from a year ago, reflecting continued momentum in client development and loans advanced as part of the Paycheck Protection Program. Excluding Paycheck Protection Program loans, lending growth was 12% over the same period. Deposits outpaced loans, growing 36% from a year ago, and AUM grew 8%, driven by client flows and market appreciation. Net interest margin was 276 basis points, down 29 basis points sequentially and 48 basis points from a year ago, driven by the continued decline in effective LIBOR rates and the impact of lower-yielding P loans. We anticipate further margin pressure from these factors to moderate going forward. Non-interest expenses were down significantly, reflecting the impact of our efficiency initiatives and a reduction in travel and business development expenses. Slide 12 covers capital markets, where we delivered record results. Net income of $392 million was up 67% from a year ago, while pre-provision earnings increased 62%, both largely as a result of higher revenues. Revenues of $1 billion were up 33% from a year ago, driven by strength across our diversified business and a recovery and valuation adjustments recorded in Q2. Higher client activity in interest rates and commodity trading, growth in corporate banking, as well as higher debt and equity underwriting all contributed to growth, partially offset by lower foreign exchange activity due to cross-border travel. Non-interest expenses were up 6% from a year ago, primarily driven by higher spend on ongoing strategic growth initiatives, particularly in the U.S., and higher revenue-linked variable expenses. Finally, slide 13 reflects the results of the corporate and other business unit. Net loss of $56 million in the quarter compared to a net loss of $7 million for the same quarter last year, driven by lower revenues and higher PCLs, partially offset by strong expense management. Revenues for the segment were impacted by lower rates and reduced transactional activity in our international business as well as the increased level and cost of our liquidity reserves and treasury. And with that, I will turn the call over to Sean. Thank you, Scratch, and good morning. Well, we've seen a moderation over the last few months relative to the extreme volatility at the, out- at the outset of the pandemic. There is still a good deal of uncertainty in terms of the course of COVID-19 and its effects on the economy and our clients. We've built on our analysis from last quarter as we continue to exercise judgment in determining our provision for credit losses for performing loans. For added context, we have provided the incremental disclosure we added last quarter on select industry exposures. Last quarter, we noted that if our economic estimates at the time were to materialize close to forecast, we would not expect to see material increases in performing allowances in subsequent quarters. Our results this quarter are consistent with that. We had a comparatively small additional build in performing provisions this quarter, principally driven by some deterioration in the economic environment and reflected in our forward-looking indicators and economic scenarios. As I'll discuss shortly, our credit portfolios have generally performed in line with our expectations this quarter and in some cases better than expected. Turning to slide 15, provision for credit losses was $525 million this quarter down from $1.4 billion in the prior quarter, with lower provisions in both impaired and performing loans. 
Provision on impaired loans of $300 million was down $43 million from last quarter, primarily due to lower insolvencies and write-offs experienced in our Canadian retail portfolios. The decrease in insolvencies was in line with the industry trend as a result of lower consumer filings, and the lower level of write-offs resulted from a combination of factors, including government support, as well as assistance offered to clients through our bank relief programs. Partially offsetting this decrease, we had higher provisions on impaired loans in the oil and gas sector of our capital markets business, as well as a small number of loans in our U.S. commercial banking business. Provision on performing loans was $225 million, largely due to an update of our forward-looking indicators and scenario weight changes based on impact input from our economics division. This particularly affected our U.S. segment provision, where recent virus activity and associated impacts on economic reopening resulted in a deterioration in our economic scenarios for the U.S. economy. At this time, we're not seeing broad-based credit weakness in the portfolio. Where we have seen issues, they've been episodic, with some concentration in the oil and gas portfolio and the retail and hospitality sectors. That said, we anticipate additional negative credit risk migration across the portfolio the longer the pandemic and associated economic conditions persist. We believe we've been prudent in recognizing performing allowances to reflect our current outlook. Turning to slide 16, allowance for credit losses grew by 9% to $3.6 billion this quarter, with our coverage ratio to gross loans increasing from 78 basis points to 86 basis points. Similar to last quarter, we've provided additional detail on our performing provisions in the bottom left corner of the slide. We recognized 113 million of model-driven provisions representing half of the total performing provisions this quarter as a result of revisions to our forward-looking indicators and changes to scenario weightings before any benefit from government support. The other half of the performing provision this quarter is a function of 236 million in additional provisions net of $124 million of other adjustments shown in the third column of the chart. Consistent with last quarter, the additional provisions are a function of applying judgment to reflect the impact of government relief programs and specific analysis on select segments of our portfolio. In particular, we recognized additional performing provisions in our retail portfolio to offset some of the positive portfolio movement reflected in the other adjustments column, which we believe are affected by temporary relief measures. Similarly, we increased the provisions in our business and government portfolio to offset model-driven releases to address qualitative factors that we believe are not fully captured in our models. Overall, the loan losses this quarter were generally in line with our expectations for business and government portfolios and somewhat better than expected in our retail portfolios. Turning to slide 17, we've provided details of our allowance coverages by line of business. As a result of the updates to our forward-looking indicators, as well as qualitative adjustments, the allowance coverage ratio increased marginally from last quarter and significantly compared to the same quarter last year. We feel comfortable with the current level of coverage and will continue to closely monitor the credit quality of our portfolios for potential future adjustments. On slide 18, we show our credit portfolio mix, which remains well diversified and consistent with last quarter. Our total loan balances were $414 billion, and the overall credit quality of our portfolio continues to remain high. Nearly two-thirds of our outstanding loans are to consumers, the majority of which are mortgages, with our uninsured mortgages having an average loan-to-value of 52%. The balance of our portfolio is in business and government lending, 
with an average risk rating for the portfolio equivalent to a triple B plus. Since the pandemic, we've reviewed over three quarters of our business and government portfolios, taking risk rating actions and specific impairments as appropriate. Overall, this lending portfolio continues to perform in line with our expectations. Slide 19 provides the status of our client accommodations and credit quality details by segment. New accommodation requests have decreased substantially this quarter, as Victor noted. Residential mortgages account for the majority of the loan balances that are subject to deferrals. Within this segment, more than 75% of clients have a FICO score of greater than 650. Uninsured mortgages represent approximately 60% of the outstanding balances, with an average loan to value of 58% and average FICO score of 723. Our cards deferrals are now complete, other than for a very small number of new requests that are being dealt with on a case-by-case basis. The payment behaviors of clients who have come off deferral are within our expectations, and we're comfortable with our provisioning as it relates to this group of clients. A majority of the Canadian business banking clients who had taken deferrals have now come off the relief program. We had higher deferral balance requests in the U.S. this quarter based on timing and processing of initial client requests. Overall, the commercial clients coming off payment deferrals are not exhibiting higher delinquencies than the overall book, which remains very low, and we've had almost no requests for deferral renewals. Turning to slide 20, we've included details of our exposure to the leisure and entertainment and the retailer sectors, which are sectors that have been particularly vulnerable during the pandemic. Our exposure to these sectors represents approximately 2% of our overall portfolio, with 29% of leisure and entertainment exposure and 47% of retail exposure being investment grade at the end of this quarter. On slide 21, we provide detail of our commercial real estate exposures in both Canada and the U.S. Our exposures in these two regions remain well diversified and continue to perform well. 68% of our Canadian portfolio and 35% of our U.S. portfolio were investment grade at quarter end. Slide 22 details our oil and gas exposure. Our wholesale exposure was $9.6 billion in the third quarter, down approximately $900 million from the prior quarter, with 43% of the portfolio being investment grade. The portfolio continues to be affected by low oil prices. We've reviewed the risk ratings of over three-quarters of the portfolio, which has led to some ratings downgrades. In the oil and gas book, this was primarily felt in the exploration and production and the services subsectors, where we downgraded approximately one-third of the names. Slide 23 provides an overview of our gross impaired loans. Gross impaired dollars were up in both consumer loans and business and government loans, mainly due to COVID-19 and continued pressure on oil prices. In our Canadian mortgage portfolio, we experienced a small increase in gross impaired balances. However, given the moderate average loan-to-value ratio of this portfolio, we do not expect this increase to translate into material losses. New formations this quarter were up from last quarter, driven by loans in our Canadian commercial banking segment, along with higher impairments in the oil and gas sector, partially offset by lower consumer formations. We do expect new formations to remain volatile in the near term. Slide 24 shows the net write-off and 90-plus day delinquency rates of our Canadian consumer portfolios. In the current quarter, we had lower insolvencies and flow write-offs as a result of government support programs and bank relief offerings. The overall Canadian consumer late-stage delinquency rate was up this quarter, with a higher rate in residential mortgages and a lower rate in credit cards and personal lending. In closing, 
While there continues to be uncertainty in terms of the course of the pandemic and impacts on the economy in the weeks and the months ahead, we remain comfortable with the quality of our portfolios and are well positioned to continue to support our clients while managing through the crisis. Provisions on impaired loans were lower this quarter than the second quarter. However, we do expect to see impaired provisions trend higher over time as relief programs come to an end and flow write-offs and insolvencies increase. As that occurs, we would expect to see more of our performing allowance transfer from Stage 2 to Stage 3 and provide a partial offset to losses in future periods. We believe our allowances are appropriate in the context of current macroeconomic conditions, and as we indicated last quarter, assuming our economic forecast doesn't deteriorate, we would not expect to see further material increases in performing allowances in subsequent quarters. I'll now turn the call back to the operator for questions. Certainly, thank you. Please press star 1 at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause while the participants register for questions. Thank you for your patience. The first question is from Gabriel Deshane with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Uh, first question, I want to talk about the, uh, the all-bank margin and margins overall. Um, one aspect that's hitting all banks is that uh, you're carrying a lot of excess liquidity, um, and that's uh, creating some negative carry in the uh, treasury, treasury area. Wondering uh, what I should look at uh, in terms of you know balance, excess liquidity. How do I measure that? And you know maybe a year from now, if things are okay, that comes back, and we can start assuming elimination of that 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 issue. And then the other one would be, you know, aside from this factor. Um, and, and Harach, you mentioned the whole, you know, gradual uh, uh, impact of the yield curve getting reflected in your margin. Can you walk us through the the, the timeline there and how how much that represents of NII erosion over the next few years as you you know reinvest your uh, your liquidity pr- uh, book? Sure. Uh, thank you, Gabriel. Good morning, and uh, thank you for the question. So l- let me start with. Q3 and what happened and what drove that, and then I'll talk about the outlook after that. So if I look at uh, total bank, uh, total bank margins on a quarter-over-quarter basis down 16 basis points. So a majority of that, I would say kind of in the 11, 12 basis points, was actually related to that excess liquidity that you described. And so the way I would think about that is um, more than NII, it's a balance issue. And you can triangulate that even if you just look at our investor presentation. You look at deposit growth versus loan growth. Uh, Deposits outpaced growth of loans significantly. So a lot of this liquidity is coming from deposits, uh, uh, not wholesale funding. And the net of that, again, as you can almost triangulate there, there is, you know, in the mid-30s billions there of, uh, of excess liquidity that came on. And so that balance affects margins. Now, I wouldn't assume it's all from uh, negative to NII. That's why I differentiate between the two. As we take on deposits, we're very focused on pricing of deposits and profitability and positive margin. So going forward, while there could be for a period of time some, uh, some NIM impact from an NIR perspective, uh, I wouldn't assume that necessarily that's negative. Uh, the rest of it are a couple of basis points from the reduction that we saw in the personal and business bank. Some of that is related to rate headwinds, which uh, we continue, and I'll touch on that. But some of that is transient, right? So... We had a reduction in utilization in number of our revolving portfolios that carry higher yields, as you know. So that would have impacted us now, and that will reverse. We had the interest rate relief provided to credit cards, and that on a year-over-year basis is sort of four-ish basis points to margin in that business. 
and that uh, expires and goes away. So starting next quarter, we'll see the reversion of that. And then there was a few basis points from the reduction in the U.S., which was largely driven by quarter over quarter. We had 90 basis points decline in effective LIBOR, and as you know, most of our assets are LIBOR-linked loans in the U.S., uh, but that, given LIBOR has now stabilized, is largely behind us. So what does that mean going forward? We're very focused on managing our liquidity position. We do think over time that we will manage this. Uh, and as I said, in the interim, we're very focused on the NII, uh, not necessarily the margins, and we are managing to positive uh, NII for the bank. In terms of the outlook on the longer-term rates, uh, we, we had provided some disclosure before we got into this pandemic around our interest rate sensitivity. And Gabe, I would say that stands. It plays out over a long period of time. But at the time, we had said 100 basis point shock is about $280 million of NII for us. You know, a bunch of things change. But when you look at, you know, 150 in Canada, 200 in the U.S. of movements since then, uh, I would see that coming into PNL over time. But it will be gradual. And so uh, in Canada, I'd guide you to more gradual in this sort of a few basis points uh, quarter type of range going forward. Mm-hmm. And then in the U.S., because a lot of it is LIBOR linked, I would say we've stabilized from here on. Gotcha. Uh, thanks for all that. And then uh, just a, a question on the uh, performing allowance. And, and, and Sean, you mentioned you don't expect material additions to it uh, going forward. Uh, I'm wondering, like, if I look at performing allowances to performing loans, you're at the low end of the, the peer group. Um, I'm wondering if, if that's something you're, you're, you're wanting to you know, move, uh, move closer to the peer group average or uh, upper end, or, or, or how are you thinking about building up the performing provision over time? Um, yeah, let's go with that. Uh, thanks, Gabriel. Uh, it's, uh, look, it's very much the process that we undertook <clears throat> and uh, continue to undertake that I talked about last quarter, and we've carried that into this quarter. So uh, we continue to work, uh, do a lot of analysis around the portfolio. We have our model-driven elements and then the expert credit judgment that we that we apply. Um, we're very comfortable with our allowance coverage at this point based on our current economic outlook. Um, you know, if, to, if and to the extent that changes or we see, you know, deterioration in the in the credit books, which we're not seeing today, that would impact that, but currently we're comfortable with where we are. Okay. I know mix, uh, comparing banks like that is a bit simplistic. Mix fa- factors matter, but uh, just trying to get a sense if there's any targets you have, or but it doesn't sound like you're, uh, you, you, well, it sounds like you're comfortable where you are. So anyway, I'll leave you there. Thanks. Thank you. The next question is from Ibrahim Punawala with Bank of America Securities. Please go ahead. Good morning. I guess I uh, just wanted to follow up uh, uh, in terms of uh, comments around uh, expense management. Uh, I think, Victor, you mentioned uh, you expect the $260 million in annual savings to be fully baked in uh, by the time we end the first quarter of next year. Just talk to us. I mean, I think uh, uh, broadly, as we think about expenses, uh, it seems like you think NII should stabilize from here, if not move higher. How should we think about expenses in, in, in the context of what's likely to be a tough revenue environment, should we still expect expenses to drift lower beyond 1 to 21, or just how you're thinking about it internally? Sure, Ibrahim, it's Raj. Uh, thanks for the question. I'll take that. Um, you know, I think uh, you, you're right in that we are being cautious with our expenses. As mentioned in our prepared remarks, 
uh, in light of the potential top-line environment that we're facing. So we will continue to be prudent with expenses, but we are balancing investment, as Victor mentioned uh, in his remarks, with, with a good result on expense growth. So uh, going forward, you referenced the restructuring. Uh, as Victor mentioned, we will, uh, we will uh, look to complete that, and so we'll have the benefit of that. And if you go back to when we announced that restructuring, we had mentioned that that gives us the ability to keep expense growth in, uh, in 21 in the low single-digit range and that we would adjust from there depending on the environment. So we're looking at the current environment. We're looking to make the investments and accelerate in certain areas to position the bank for growth in the top-line headwinds that we're going to face. But at the same time, given that environment, we're finding more efficiency opportunities. And that's why I say in the comments I make, you know, we will look to keep expenses contained we are looking to generate uh, pre-provision earnings growth. But in terms of giving you specific numbers beyond that for 2021, I think it's a little bit early. So we will update you on that in Q4. But that's the way we're looking at it uh, on a balance. Got it. And I guess just separately in terms of uh, looking at the mortgage business, uh, if we could get an update around, uh, it seems like the business went through a little bit of a restructuring over the last two years. Where are we in terms of the growth rate of the mortgage business returning to peer-like levels? And how do you think about ratcheting up growth in a backdrop where one could debate that the housing market looks a little bit frothy once again and could get worse uh, from that standpoint over the next few quarters? Good morning, Ibrahim. It's Laura. So I'll, I'll take Laura. that one on mortgages. Um, we're comfortable with where we're at. So if, if you were to take a look at our disclosures, I think you'll see that our origination activity is actually quite strong. Um, where I think we need to do better is really where it comes to retention, and that relates to previously booked mortgages, particularly if you go back to some of the previous vintages that we have, um, where we could do a better job, if you will, retaining them. So if you take, you know, origination sort of minus that um, – retention issue I mentioned, uh, you'll see that we're up 2.5% uh, year over year. Uh, so we're not where we want to be. Uh, I think we have more work to do. Uh, that said, uh, we have reversed the trend. It does feel like we're headed in a more promising direction. And when we look at some of the OSFI uh, information that was released, if you look at the month-over-month -month growth data, you can see CIBC where we've moved from uh, fourth spot in May uh, into the third spot uh, in June. And so while we're still not where we want to be, I would tell you that we're headed in the right direction. And when I look at our pipeline, uh, it does uh, feel, again, promising. And we are, uh, I would say, being very diligent and mindful about the new business that we're putting on our, our books as well. So again, not where we want to be, but comfortable with the direction we're headed in, if that answers your question. Uh, no, it does. Uh, thanks for taking my questions. Thank you. The next question is from Manny Grauman with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Uh, just following up uh, on the mortgage business, um, just wondering how much of the activity that you're seeing now is, is, is pent-up demand? And, and really, uh, the point of that is just to wonder about uh, the outlook for 21 and, and how much of a risk do you peg on a more dramatic slowdown in the mortgage market uh, next year? Well, I'm happy uh, to start that one off, uh, Manny. Uh, I'm not 
sure I'm going to call sort of where 2021 goes. Uh, again, I can tell you for the things we control is the type of business that we want to take on our books. Uh, very comfortable, as I said, with the type of origination uh, that we're doing. And I do think, again, as I mentioned earlier, for us, uh, the real question is one of retention. And so if we can do a better job on the retention side, I think you will see, or that should translate into uh, better numbers uh, from us. Uh, we'd also like to do better in the first-time home buyer market. Uh, if you go through, again, our disclosures, and you can see sort of regionally, uh, we've got some, I'd say, well-balanced growth. We've lost a bit in the GVA area, and that's where we have our, our bigger uh, retention issue that we're working on. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, that does. Um, and then I just wanted to switch gears and just ask about uh, the U.S. margin and the the impact of the triple P loans on the U.S. margin. What, what would the margin be if you exclude the triple P loans? Sure. Thank you, Manny. Um, you know, it's a small impact, a few basis points, uh, I would say, at this point in the margin of the U.S. due to the, the triple P loans. And you know, those are still uh, positive margin loans, but uh, lower than the rest of the portfolio. And so there will be a little bit of noise while that uh, is in the book and as it rolls off. Uh, but, uh, but that should be positive noise, uh, but small. And should that roll-off happen by, like in, in the first half of, of 21? What's the timing there for that? Yes, and uh, you know, as you know, there has been an extension to uh, to the program, uh, but we do expect over the next few quarters here that'll play out. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Scott Chen with Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, uh, Laura. Just going back to mortgages, you, you kind of talked about the uh, the retention issue. Um, you know, what what are some of the things that uh, that you're focused on to to kind of um, I, I guess improving that that aspect. Uh, sure. Good morning, Scott. Uh, well, I'd say it's really about uh, better client engagement uh, and better franchising of our clients. And so we, as I mentioned earlier, I think do a a really solid job from an acquisition perspective. We just need to do a better job from a retention perspective. Uh, and so that is all about uh, client engagement, uh, engaging, I would say, with our clients um, sort of during the pro from the time we've onboarded uh, up until the time renewal comes is where we're going to focus on ensuring we do a better job, if you will, franchising our clients, having a deeper uh, relationship, conversations with them, and uh, that should help us, in my view, uh, on the retention side. And then just a big picture question for Victor. Um, now that your capital is is a lot stronger, I was wondering if if M and A or bolt-ons are are in the equation. Um, and and I know the focus will be on organic growth. And we, when we think about um, you know CIBC positioning for that growth, what business units or or areas during this pandemic um, you know can, can CIBC capitalize on? Uh, Scott, we're uh, good question. We're pleased with our capital levels. Obviously, we're at a very good level. I think we've been very, very clear with our investor base that our focus is on organic growth and driving that organic growth and the transformation of our bank, particularly given the pandemic. Uh, we recognize that there's some things we don't control. We don't control interest rates. We don't control the path to a vaccine or a treatment, but we do control how we can generate returns for our shareholders. 
and our focus and, and our, our very sharp focus is in three specific areas, making sure that we have the resources to, do, to support our clients, whether there's downside in the market or whether there's upside in the market. Our focus on the simplification and the transformation of our bank and the, 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 the core of our bank so that we can operate uh, efficiently and see that mixed ratio over time drop as the world normalizes. And the third thing I'd say is maintaining the tailwinds in the businesses where we have tailwinds. We have tailwinds in many of our businesses. And the one area that Laura has been touching on it is in the Canadian Consumer Bank and creating the tailwinds there and investing in that business. And a disproportionate amount of our resources are being directed to drive a better result in our Canadian consumer franchise. And, and just on bolt-ons, is that anything in the cards in the short term or is it, is it just primarily what you talked about on the organic side? Listen, there's always opportunities for, for, for things that strengthen our organic growth trajectory, but it really is, uh, for the short to medium term, a very much focused organic growth trajectory for our bank. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question is from Doug Young with Desjardins Capital. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Just back to the set one ratio and just curious to see how you see that credit migration flowing through and, and impacting the set one ratio, let's say, over the next year through fiscal 21. It sounds like you've gone through two-thirds of your business or wholesale book. I assume the retail book uh, and the review of the risk ratings comes over the next few quarters. Just wondering how we should think about migration and the evolution of that set one ratio in the context of migration and the reviews of these portfolios. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Siracho. I'll start and I'll pass it on to Sean to talk a little bit about the, the credit migration in more detail after, but um, I'll start with the overall outlook on C21. And you know, as we mentioned in the remarks, we did see, uh, and you referenced to the credit work that was done, we did see a significant amount of migration. And you know, when you pour through our, uh, our Pillar 3 sub-pack, you'll see a small change in asset quality in the quarter. But that really was a net, uh, as you mentioned. Wholesale was actually a fairly large number offset by retail as we went through this. And we do see that playing out over time. But the guidance I would give you is this, this will play out over several quarters. We feel very good about our organic capital generation net of uh, organic growth in the portfolio. And so we think we have uh, some capacity there to absorb migrations as they come out. And so, you know, that's why, as I said in my remarks, I would guide you around stable on CUT1 going forward as that plays out. And exactly which way it'll bias, you know, from that stable up or down, frankly, depends on a number of factors that are uncertain at this point. The level of organic growth in market as the economy recovers or potentially goes down a second path, and, uh, and, and the speed at which those migrations will come out. But the overall migration impact is no different than the outlook we gave you last time. It'll play out over the next uh, few quarters. But, uh, Sean, anything to add on? Hey, good morning, Doug. Um, so, from a credit migration perspective, we have started to see, as we as we telegraphed last quarter, we expected to see some credit migration uh, over the course of time, and we did see that this quarter. Uh, we've, as I mentioned in my my remarks, uh, we've been through over 75% of our uh, business and government portfolios, uh, and have taken rating action uh, where it was appropriate. Um, so that's been reflected in the CET one. There were some offsets to that um, across a number of different asset classes, and um, in, including in the retail portfolios, uh, given elements of utilization, uh, the deferral programs, 
uh, updated beacon scores. So that had an offsetting impact, but we expect to continue to see some negative credit migration if things play out the way we're forecasting over the next call it, several quarters. I guess given the size of your retail, um, you know, the business was kind of sizable, as you, you, you indicated, the, the retail was a, was a positive. I would imagine, so you're not anticipating a significant negative migration out of the retail book over the next few quarters, and you're basically suggesting your, your organic capital generation can more than offset that. Is that the way to think of it? Yeah, I'd say uh, there's some uh, probably um, uh, under-representation, I would say, in terms of the credit migration in the retail book because of temp those temporary measures I mentioned, government support, lower utilization, et cetera, that could revert. You know, my sense is, and based on the modeling that we've done, I suggest sort of a billion to two, maybe a billion to two and a half uh, of uh, RWA migration from that perspective to sort of get back to something that would look more normal, you know, to offset those temporary measures. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, as we've forecasted in the normal course. And then, Raj, just... Oh, so go ahead. Sorry, and I was going to say, and, and uh, as I mentioned in my remarks, we do, uh, to answer your question on retained earnings, we do have uh, some strength there and can offset that level of migration over several quarters. And your thought, Raj, is uh, that's net of the ECL transition kind of migrating, the benefit of that migrating down, I would assume? Yeah, so uh, Sean mentioned the RWA number. There'll, there'll be a piece on the ECL uh, on that as well. But, uh, you know, net-net, we're looking at it as, you know, as the deferral programs go away and some of those delinquents start flowing through, you know, maybe it's sort of in the, in the 10 basis point range of C1 all included, including that ECL thing. Uh, and in addition to that, over time, if we see government support go away and some of the behaviors on deleveraging and utilization, you know, start going the other way, you could have a, a bit more there to take you another 10 or so. But, you know, as you see, those numbers are, uh, are pretty small. And when they play out over several quarters with the level of organic generation we have, uh, it does tend to make it easier to absorb. Great. And then just second, the Canadian commercial NIMS held in relatively well. Um, just was a bit surprised. Can you talk a bit about what uh, what helped temper the negative impact on on that in the quarter? Is there anything unusual in there? And maybe just a bit of an outlook, just specifically on Canadian commercial NIMS. Sure. Yeah. And there can be noise in uh, in Canadian commercial NIMS as we've to talked about before because of uh, of BA funded uh, credit facilities and so forth. But uh, you know, this quarter we did have uh, eight basis points quarter over quarter. And uh, some of what you saw there was uh, the funding costs going up and uh, the wider prime BA, which, which is just noise. Um, and then uh, what really offset that was the strength in deposits. So the margins on deposits are, are strong in that business, and we continue to see very strong deposit growth that provided uh, an offset uh, to that uh, prime BA impact. And going forward, you know, from what we see at this point, there continues to be strength in deposits. And... Uh, you know, some of the fluctuations around Prime BA, hard to predict. I'll call that volatility. So net-net um, uh, some stability. Great. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Sorab Movahedi with the BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks. Uh, Laura, quick question for you. you. Your bank has obviously been very good at doing this, as, as, as have other banks. You've got pretty good statistics here around 
basically the digital angle of your business. And your digital adoption rate, I think on page 27, is up to about 75%. I guess a two-part question, is there a saturation point on digital adoption? And when you look at some of these statistics that you give us on digital, is there any one in particular that you are focused on that will help drive your business forward? And how will that do that? Is it through top-line growth, or is that through improved efficiency uh, through cost management? Just trying to kind of get a feel for uh, how much benefit is still on the come relative to that 75% digital adoption rate. Uh, sure. Good morning, Saurabh. Um, well, I tell you that they're all uh, important um, in that in a perfect world, 100% of our clients are actively uh, using digital. And so that would be, call it on the, the front end, uh, where I think we will get the most pickup is as we really work through not just our, our digital sales capabilities sort of at the front end, but the full end-to-end digitization and automation, if you will, to get to remote fulfillment. When we do that, we should see an increase in um, our productivity. And so I would hope we will start to see, when you look at that slide you've mentioned, where uh, we just see more from a self-serve transaction, you'll see more active mobile users. Uh, so we're going to keep going to try to get to 100%. That's always the target in everything that we can do digitally. It's, um, again, it's easier uh, and it adds to uh, our bottom line if we can get more folks using digital and if we can do more end-to-end uh, digitization. And, and if you get there, Laura, are we looking at a low 40% expense to revenue ratio for your business? Or, uh, or is it still going to be in the mid to high 40s? Well, I mean, you're about can... 50 right now, but I'm just trying to kind of get a feel for what's the potential kind of sizing the prize, if you will. Yeah, I think all I can uh, tell you at this point in time is we're going to work hard to do better on that next ratio. So, you know, we want to deliver, obviously, uh, more growth. We want to work on better client engagement, as I mentioned earlier, with uh, mortgages. And as Sriracha mentioned, contain uh, expenses. So hopefully all that will uh, will contribute, but I'm not prepared to, to put a number on it today. Okay. And, and just uh, maybe just for a point of quick clarification, Sean, I mean, I think you answered this to Doug's question, but if, you, if I can come at it a little bit differently, can you give us a kind of yardstick of what's the RWA associated with uh, with the mortgages that uh, that are current but in deferral versus mortgages that are non-current, uh, just so that we have a sense of that. I think you mentioned that the one to two, I think one to one and a half billion incremental RWA, but I'm just trying to kind of get a sense of how much more capital intensive those those mortgages could become if they're not, uh, I guess I could do the math, but if you have it handy, that would be helpful. Yeah, so, so the, the number that I was, was guiding to was uh, uh, in respect of uh, the cards in the personal lending book. On, on the mortgage book, it would be a small uh, pickup, I think, from that. I don't have the, the number handy, but it would be a relatively small uh, ad with respect specifically to, uh, to the mortgages. Okay, so not that much more capital intensive. If 2%, you know, it's that 98% on mortgages that are 
you know, if the two percent falls away or one percent go, you know, uh, get further delayed, it's not that's not going to cause a, a huge capital drag from an RWA perspective. Here. No, sir. But maybe I'll jump in, and uh, you'll see this in the in the pillar three sub pack, and you'll get into the PD bands. You'll see a lot of the improvement in the PD bands was in other categories, not in the mortgage, and that's where it's playing out. And you had some in the mortgage side, but as you know. Mortgage RWAs are low to begin with, so because of the LGDs and so forth. And so as you get some of these movements in PDs up or down uh, with the change in environment and delinquencies, it doesn't drive that much in RWA. So to Sean's point, those are total numbers, and they're largely driven by the other categories, uh, with mortgages being a small component. Thanks for the clarification. If I can just jump in before the next question, we have a number of you in the queue, and if I can remind you to try to limit your questions to one, we'd like to get through um, the queue. We'll go a few minutes beyond 9 o'clock, but I know you have another bank to get to, so if I could just ask you to stick to one question, that would be great. Thanks. Thank you. And the next question is from Darko Mihovic with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi. Thank you. I guess if I just have one question, um, I'll revert to Laura on uh, on page 19. As I look at the deferrals, what, I'm tr- what we're all trying to triangulate here is how it's going to play out uh, when people come off deferrals. And, uh, and I know you don't want to guess at a number, so a couple of statistics might be helpful for us. Uh, the first is, you know, in statistics that I'm specifically looking for, around the mortgages, there's 99,000 accounts uh, that are currently still on deferral. Of those accounts that are on deferral, how many are unemployed? How many are receiving SERB payments? And how many of them have a credit card with your company uh, with an outstanding balance? Those statistics might might help us. And maybe it's unfair that I'm trying to get it from you and not the other banks, but uh, hopefully you can give me a hand there. Good morning, Darko. So feeling kind of used to life being unfair at times, so let me try to uh, answer that as uh, best I can. So uh, with our mortgage deferrals, uh, we have most that have taken, as you know, I'd say greater than 90% took the six-month deferral. Um, We do have an awful lot of data. I think some of the the more important data, just you've asked about SERB. So we're at about 15% of our client base uh, that are in mortgage deferrals that have taken the SERB payments. Again, I'm not sure that I've put too much emphasis on who got SERB and who didn't, just given all the government government assistance programs um, and others that will come. It's a bit hard to call based upon this particular stat. Um, I think some of what uh, is important to look at is some of the information that we provided. When you look at the uh, average FICO scores, you can see there that uh, they're pretty solid, which would indicate uh, good clients. Uh, From a franchising perspective, 65% of those are long-tenured clients, and that's sort of in that greater than uh, 10-year bucket. Uh, the majority fall into that 35 to 50-year-old range. Uh, the majority are employed, uh, notwithstanding the smaller percentage that are taking the CERB. Um, and most of them are sitting uh, in Ontario. About 40% of that book is insured. Uh, so hopefully that gives you, a, I guess, a little bit of color in terms of uh, our clients that have requested uh, deferrals. 
I hope that helps. And I think one of the important takeaways here, too, is when we look at our mortgages and we go back, and Haraj was talking about it, when you look at losses in the event of default, like we lose one, maybe two basis points uh, with mortgages. And so, uh, you know, even if we were to lose more, it's still a small amount. So I, I mean, myself don't get overly concerned uh, when it comes to the mortgages and the deferrals. And I actually feel, I would tell you, more comforted when I look at the, the profile of those that have uh, requested deferrals. Does that answer uh, that, your question? It, it does almost. I mean, that's I agree with you on the losses, but that's also why I asked about credit card exposure. So how, you know, how many of the of those um, on because the mortgage payment's the big one, right? Every, a lot of people can make a very small payment on the credit card, but with the big mortgage payment coming, how many of them have balances, and uh, is there any concern that we should think about? And, and those balances presumably are starting to grow. So any any sort of indication on cross. Um, product utilization rates might be helpful. Okay, well, I would, um, so we do have that information. I don't have it, uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, so assuming we can uh, share that at a later date. Uh, what I would say, though, if you look at our uh, credit cards, and uh, Sean spoke to it, uh, that payment behavior uh, is what's important, because I would tell you that that's more of the leading indicator, uh, and as Sean was talking about the payment patterns we're seeing there are all within expectations and as Sean pointed out the levels of provisioning that are there adequately reflect um, the trends so I, I think we're good in that regard too but we can look to pull that uh, percentage thanks very much Laura thank you the next question is from Nigel D'Souza with Veritas Investment Research please go ahead Thank you. Good morning. Um, I wanted to turn to the delinquency numbers that you outlined on slide 24. And uh, on that slide, you noted uh, what delinquency rates would be excluding payment deferrals. And I was wondering if you could just provide more color on how you determine those numbers. And yeah, good morning. It's Sean. Uh, so the way we looked at that was what would the roll rates have been had we not uh, provided the deferrals uh, for those products. So, um, you know, we would have had a, a higher uh, delinquency rate had we not shown those deferrals. As, as an example, on the credit card side, we've modeled out what we would have expected the roll rates to be and what the associated uh, credit losses would have been that would have flown through as a function of that. So we would have probably recognized somewhere between 50 and $60 million worth of incremental net charge-offs uh, as a function of those had we not granted the deferrals. We've provided for that in so much as we've taken that into consideration as we thought about expert credit judgment and, and doing overlays. So it's more of a timing issue as it relates to those. We haven't assumed that it would, we would lose less, uh, less on some of those balances as a function of providing the deferrals. But you could think about it in terms of 50 to 60 million that we've not recognized in impaired, and you saw the drop in impaired losses on the retail side this quarter. Uh, but we have taken that into account, and believe we've been, you know, we're well provisioned uh, for that portfolio. Okay, and just on credit cards, um, should we interpret it as, you know, just that number there, 102, to interpret it as that you expect delinquency rates in the card book to uh, go up meaningfully next quarter, or is it just the noise that you were referring to? You know, we, as, as deferrals come off, uh, we do expect to see 
migration in that portfolio, and ultimately uh, some of those balances will lead to losses. We expect to see those losses peak in the first half of 21. If I had to guess, it'll be sort of towards the middle uh, uh, or the latter part of the first half uh, of Q of uh, of 2021. Um, but uh, so yes, we will see that migrate over the course of uh, the next few quarters. Okay, appreciate the color. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Mario Mendonca with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Good morning. If we could just go to a more general topic of uh, client activity. Looking at um, a number of your fee categories, like deposit and payment fees, credit fees, card fees, the trends were, are fairly apparent. A big drop-off in Q2, smaller drop-off in Q3, and even maybe even an inflection point here. What I'm getting at now is, is it, is it conceivable that with the reopening of economies that um, client activity will cause some of these fee categories to actually start to grow in on a sequential basis? I appreciate your over year, perhaps not, but sequentially. Is that, is that a reasonable assumption? Good morning, Mario. It's Raj. I'll start, and then the, the, the businesses can jump in uh, with some color on the client side. But, uh, you know, I think you're generally in the right territory. So as you mentioned, if you look at the card fees, for example, that has, uh, that has rebounded uh, from where it was, uh, but not quite there yet. And, uh, you know, you'll know that the, the fee income we recognize is an average across the quarter. And so we did see things improve in that sense over the quarter. So we ended the quarter in a much better place on card transaction activity than we started. And so we don't have the full impact of the current levels that we're seeing yet in Q3. So that will continue, you know, assuming things stay the way they are now, um, that will continue to provide some benefit there as we go forward. On the uh, deposit fee side, as you mentioned, there is um, there is a bit of a drag there still, and that one uh, that one particularly has continued to be challenged. And a lot of that is related, I think, to the activity that we're seeing with uh, with clients uh, keeping more cash and so forth. So, uh, and some of the activity around handling of cash itself also down. So whether you talk about ATM fees, account fees, and so forth, you know that one could take a bit longer. Uh, and as the cash sort of starts leaving the system, if it does, and some of those activities go back to normal, uh, we would see that coming back as well uh, over more of the long term. And obviously, a number of the fees around investment management and mutual fund, uh, we're, we, we're confident in our uh, trajectory on net flows and sales of assets with clients, uh, but the markets impact that far more in the short term than, uh, than net flows do. So that will depend on where markets go. Is that helpful? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Our last question will be from Mike Rosanovic with Credit Suisse Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. A quick question maybe for Hratch. Uh, just on further expense saving opportunities, I'm just wondering, is it fair to think that the majority would be coming from additional um, headcount reduction gradually? I'm, I'm not referring to another restructuring charge, but uh, just through normal attrition, um, is it fair to think that you could see your total headcount come down maybe by a couple, two to three percentage points over the course of 2021? So thank, thanks, Mike, for the question. And uh, we, we focus on expenses across uh, the entire bank and all categories. Obviously, our, uh, our headcount is a big component of that. But, uh, you know, we've announced our restructuring. As we said, we will complete that restructuring. So on a year-over-year basis, 
just the impact of that coming through in 21 uh, will cause uh, will cause a reduction uh, sort of in the neighborhood of what you're talking about. Um, we are also very focused on the growth in headcount going forward from here. And so with the increase in digitization and virtual uh, interactions that we're seeing, we are, uh, and Victor talked about the transformation of our bank, we are very focused on digital and finding ways to, uh, to automate work internally in the operational side of our bank and interact with our clients more virtually, which gives us potentially some more leverage. So it is conceivable over time that that allows us to manage the growth, and, uh, and obviously attrition gives you an opportunity to, uh, to drive numbers down if you don't replace that with growth. Okay, that's helpful. And just real curious, um, what's, the, what's the reasonable attrition rate? Is 3% a reasonable number at the all-bank level? over the course of a year? I think it does, uh, it, it depends, uh, it depends on uh, what part of the bank uh, you're talking about. And so some areas we do tend to see uh, potentially higher just given the revolve rates. For example, if you look at, uh, if you look at Laura's side of the business, which tends to have a lot of our employees, it could be a bit higher than that in the mid single digits in any given year. Got it. That's helpful. Thanks. Thank you. I would now like to turn the meeting back over to Victor. Thank you, Operator, and thank you all for your very insightful questions. Uh, before we end this call, I wanted to again thank our incredible CIBC team. While there are still many unknowns related to the pandemic, our people have stepped up in remarkable ways this year to reinforce that we have a singular connected team that is relentlessly focused on our clients. Importantly, we have uh, executed decisively on our long-term vision amid this pandemic and are confident our transformative plans will help us emerge from this a stronger and a much more resilient bank with clear growth momentum. I'd like to thank our shareholders for their continued support and our entire CIBC team for their dedication to making our clients' ambitions a reality. Thank you and take care and off to your next call. Enjoy the day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.